Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 12 this morning. Really, one of the richest passages in, in the whole New Testament. Just an incredible passage. Let's read it. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For in him, that is Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. In which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God. Who raised him from the dead. Father, thank you so much for the truth that is before us this morning. The truth about your son Jesus Christ. That we have all things in him that we have been identified with Him, that He is far and above every other name that can be named, every ruler, every principality, every power, He is far and above. And we would ask that now, Father, You would exalt the name of Jesus in our hearts and minds, that You would exalt the name of Jesus in the congregation and in the community. He is far and above. Jesus, You are all that we need. We ask that this Bible study this morning would be praise and adoration unto you. That you'd be enthroned upon the praises of this Bible study. And the Holy Spirit, you would instruct us in these deep and wonderful things. My Father, you know how I feel this morning. I feel so inadequate to teach this. I feel so unable, so unsure of myself. And so we would ask together in one mind and one accord that I would decrease in Holy Spirit. You would increase. That you would come and instruct us. I can't do this, Lord. That you would come and give us understanding of these wonderful things. You would take the syllables that would fall from these lips and you cause them to be life-transforming agents in the hearts of men and women. And more than that, you would speak to us. You'd speak to us in ways that are too deep for words. Just... Move in our hearts, Holy Spirit. Want to hear from the living God. Want to be stirred up about Christ Jesus and our position in Him. All that we have in Him. So make this a wonderful, life-changing Bible study just for Your glory, Lord. For Your name. For Your honor and for Your praise and for the furtherance of Your kingdom. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, verse 9, we covered a little bit last week at the end of our lesson, and we're just going to cover it a little bit at the beginning of this lesson, but let's just read it again. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You'll remember that last week we talked about the fact that the, the philosophers in the area at the time had come up with some false ideas. You know, pondering, how can a holy God make evil creation? And they came up with two false assumptions. One was that all matter was evil. They imagined this exaggerated dichotomy between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. They said, all matter, everything physical is evil. You remember that. And then they said, God, a holy God, could never come in contact with evil matter. And so they postulated that the way this world came into creation was there was a series of emanations that came forth from God. An emanation is something that is emitted or comes forth from a source. A series of emanations, and as they went forth from God, they kind of descended from good to bad. And each one of them had a little bit of deity in them, and the further they got from God, the less deity, the less power. And what they postulated was that in these series of emanations, there must have been one that was still close enough to God that it had the power to create, had enough divinity, deity in it to create, but it was far enough from God that it created evil matter. And so that was the being that created all that we see. But to get back then to that holy God, you have to go through... Wow, sorry about that. Don't know what that is. To get back to that holy God, you have to go through, is that my mic? Yeah? Okay, hold on one sec. We're going to try some things here. Give us a minute. Oh. 
It is. Do we have that backup one ready? We do? Okay. Let me see. I'm going to give it one more shot. And if she does it again, we'll switch. You guys okay? Okay. It's just a microphone. (laughs) And so then they began to teach. And the idea began to penetrate the church. To get back to that one true holy God, you had to go through all these various emanations, these spiritual beings. And that Jesus was just one of those emanations, a good one, but just one of many. And you had to go through all of them to get back to God. And okay, Christians, you got Jesus, that's great, but let us show you what you don't have. And and so that's what Paul has been addressing Those false philosophical assumptions and and the product that was wrought from them of, okay, you got to go beyond Jesus really to get to God. And he says, no, 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 in verse 9. No, 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 in verse 9. All the fullness of deity is in Christ Jesus. It is not spread out through a series of emanations. The totality of divinity, everything that God is, the fullness of His power, the completeness of His holiness, the totality of His character, all of it is in Christ Jesus. It's not spread out through various emanations and you need to go and collect it. It is all to be found, everything about God in Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that He is the exact replication of God. The icon is the term there in Greek. He is the exact representation. Remember John 1.1 tells us in the beginning was God. Remember that? And and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Remember that. In the beginning, Jesus Christ was. He is God, the Bible teaches very clearly. Jesus said in John 14, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And this is one of the clearest attestations to the divinity of Jesus Christ. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, when Paul wrote down in bodily form, you know, that really was a blow to that Gnostic, that, that, that Greek philosophical thought. It was really a blow because to them, all matter was evil. And so how could it be that a holy God would drape himself in evil humanity? Well, we talked about last week that the atonement is impossible unless Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He had to be fully God because the sacrifice for your sin and for my sin had to be without sin. And that's only God. He had to be fully man because Leviticus 17.11 says that uh, the life is in the blood and God has given us the blood for atonement. And Hebrews 9.22 says without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so he had to be a holy and sinless sacrifice. But to pay the price for my life he had to spill his blood, real blood. Upon the cross. And for sinful man to be identified with him. He became a man. And was identified with us. Not in our sinfulness. But in our humanity. That he might redeem us. It's wonderful. But you see just a little bit of error. Just a little bit of false philosophy and tradition of man. Begin to get them way off course here. And the warning last week was. Don't be taken captive by such things. Don't be carried off as spoil. Don't, don't be trapped in such things. Do not tolerate a little bit of error. If I were to give you a glass of water, and I said to you, this water is 99% pure, but it is 1% poison. Who would drink the water? Nobody drinks that glass of water. You say, you know what, I'll just forget about it. I'll just go for some pure water. And so it is with our doctrine. So it is as we listen to teachers. We need to be very careful that everything that is said from this pulpit and any other pulpit lines up with the Word of God. And the responsibility to check that lies solely with you. It lies solely with you. You must be a Berean, noble of mind. And when you hear anybody teach the Word of God, you compare it to the Scriptures of God to make sure that those things are so. You must do that. That responsibility lies with you. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and vain deceit was the exhortation last week because the fullness of everything that we need and the fullness of deity is in Christ Jesus in bodily form. Now that word fullness in the Greek is pleroma. Pleroma. And basically it means fullness. 
not lacking anything, completely and totally. And when it says that it dwells in Christ Jesus, it means to settle down and to be at home. To settle down and to be at home. So the totality, the fullness of God is in Christ Jesus in bodily form. Now it's interesting for us to know that Jesus Christ is still in bodily form. It's a biblical doctrine. Go, go check your Bible. He's in a glorified body, of course, after the resurrection. But we're told in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that when the Lord comes again, and he will set his feet down on the Mount of Olives, according to the book of Zechariah, when he comes again, that all Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will weep for him. He bears those scars as a testimony. We read in Isaiah 49 that he has inscribed us upon the palms of his hands and so he can't forget us. Zion says, the Lord has forgotten me. And the Lord says, can a mother forget her nursing child? Even this may forget, but I will never forget you. I have inscribed you upon the palms of my hand. And when we see Jesus face to face that is coming for you and I, we will see the wounds. A testimony of our redemption. And so he is still utterly and completely God. All the power, the character, the presence is in him continually, always, and forever. And it says in verse 10 then, in him you have been made complete. In him then you have been made complete. Now it's important that you realize when you become a Christian, you're placed in Christ Jesus. That's what happens. You're delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. You're now in Him in the sense that God the Father identifies you with Him. You're in Him. He's in you, but you're in Him. Your identity becomes absorbed in His. And in Him, we are made complete. Or it might be translated, we are filled up in him. Because apart from him, man is incomplete. Because of the fall of man, there's, we're in a sad state of incompleteness. We are spiritually incomplete because we're out of fellowship with God before we're in Christ. We are morally incomplete because we live outside of God's will before we come to Christ. And we are mentally incomplete Because we do not know the ultimate truth before we come to Christ. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Colossians that the natural man cannot understand these things. They are spiritually discerned. Before we come to Christ, we are incomplete. But when we come to him, what do I mean by come? What do I mean by come? I mean you come and you say, God, I'm a sinner. We don't water it down. We don't mince words. I'm a sinner. Not just I've done wrong things, but I've done bad things. Anybody here that would say you've never done a bad thing? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I will convince you otherwise. (laughs) We've all done bad things. Bad against who? Bad against other people? Sure we have. But namely bad against God. All sin is against God. Even if you just mess up with another person, it's ultimately against God. And we have all sinned against God. And the penalty of sin, the wages of sin, what it earns you is death. Physical death, yes, that came at the fall of man. But eternal death, it's known as the second death, which is eternal separation from God. It's not soul sleep, it's not annihilationism, it's not that you cease to exist, it's that you are in hell, separated from God where there is weeping and gnashing and outer darkness and the worm that consumes the flesh and never dies. But when you come to him and you say, I am a sinner. I have done wrong things and bad things, but I understand that Jesus Christ, you are the Savior. Forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins. To repent means to turn away from. I not only acknowledge that they are wrong, but I declare that I want to turn away from that lifestyle and away from those things and to you, God, and your character and your kingdom and your righteousness and your purpose and your plan. And so save me. I repent. Save me. That's what I mean by come to him. Anything less, not coming to him. When you come to him and you're saved, at that moment, you become a partaker of the divine nature. You don't become a God. 
The Bible doesn't teach that. The New Age teaches that. The Mormons teach that. But the Bible doesn't teach that. You don't become a God, but you partake of the one true and living God because you are now placed in Him. You're identified with Him. And remember last week, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, so that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. His divine power has given us everything that we need in that we are then filled up with the fullness of God. We're filled up with Christ Jesus. That's what it means when it says, in Him we're made complete. When we are in Him, we are filled up. John 1.16 says, For of His fullness we have all received. Of His fullness we have all received. And that participle is in the perfect tense, which means it would be translated like this. And you, this verse, And you are in Him, having been completely filled full, with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. That's what it means when a Greek participle is in the perfect tense. You are filled to being completely full with the present result that you are in a continual state of being full. You understand that? It's not that you ever have less of God. It's just that sometimes He has less of you. You understand? There seems to be a deficiency. If there seems to be a separation, guess who moved? Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Guess who moved? And so we become filled with the fullness of God. Now, we've got we to think about this. We don't have the fullness of God in us in the same way that Christ does. I mean, He in bodily form, it's the miracle of the in, incarnation, contain the totality of who God is. We just become partakers of the divine nature. We become identified with uh, one of my favorite commentators, R. Kent Hughes again, illustrates it this way. He says, I could go down to the beach, I could go to the Pacific Ocean, and I could dip a jar into the ocean. And the jar can be instantly filled with the fullness of the Pacific. But I could never put the fullness of the Pacific Ocean into my jar. You understand? That jar can get totally filled up with the ocean. But you can never put the fullness of the ocean in that jar. It wouldn't contain it. Tu comprende? Tu comprends? You, you understand? It, it would never contain it. But the miracle of the incarnation is that Jesus Christ in his bodily form contained the totality of deity. But we just become partakers. You see, we're just little vessels. But we get filled up. We get filled up with the Lord. Now, in Him you have been made complete. You have been filled. You have everything that you need. And again, if there's a deficiency, it's not that you have less of God, it's maybe He's got less of you. You don't have less of His attention. His thoughts toward you are more numerous than the sand on the beach. So that He's got less of your attention. He didn't move, He theologically can't. You moved. We have everything that we need in Him. And oftentimes, as we spoke about last week, we perceive, we think that there's something missing. It just means you need to dive into Christ Jesus as you would dive into the Pacific Ocean. Just dive into the fullness of who He is. And then we have this phrase here in the second part of verse 10. And He is the head over all rule and authority. Now, we'll deal with that concept mostly next week. We dealt with it several weeks ago in chapter 1. We'll deal with it again Next week when we talk about verse 15. But suffice it to say for right now, when it comes to angels and demons, Jesus is not on the same level as them. They were all created by him. He's the firstborn over all creation. In fact, just look back on on, uh, the previous page, chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so, when it comes to the rest of the spiritual realm, it'd be a horrible misconception and really a sin to see, to begin to think that maybe angels have, have the same 
power that the Lord Jesus Christ does. Or as it's more often maybe misconstrued in Christian circles, is that demons have the same power. I'm telling you, they do not. It is not a power issue between the Lord Christ Jesus and any demonic principality, including Lucifer himself. It is not a power issue. Jesus Christ is the all-powerful one. It's to the degree that you resist the tempter. It's to the degree that you resist the adversary. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, the Bible says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We've been given the authority of Christ Jesus. We just need to learn to stand in it. There needs to come a time where we just say what's what and who's who and we don't let the devil push us around anymore. It can be difficult, I understand. Believe me, I understand about spiritual battle. But the enemy, the enemy his greatest tactic is to try to intimidate you. To try to, think you, try to get you to think that he's got some power over you or some authority or some right or something over your head. He doesn't. He absolutely does not. You are in Christ Jesus. You become a partaker of his divinity. All the fullness we've partaken of. We've been filled up with the Lord and he is far and above every power and principality. But I digress. More about that next week. I want to hold off on that till next week. Now we get to verse 11. It says, and in him, notice in the last three verses there, it's in him. Verse 9, in him. Verse 10, in him. Now verse 11, and in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, circumcision. We deduce by the fact that Paul mentions circumcision here that some of the false ideas that were beginning to penetrate the church were coming from a group of people that we'll call Judaizers. Judaizers. That is to say, they recognize Christianity. They may even claim Christianity. But you understand Christianity came out of Judaism, right? You understand that that's our roots. Jesus was a Jew, after all, Right? When God chose to drape himself in humanity, he didn't come as an Italian, much to some of your dismay, Italian people. (laughs) He came as a Jew. Christianity comes out of Judaism, or more correctly said theologically, is the completion of Judaism. Tell that to a Jew and have a wonderful argument. Have a nice day. But that is the biblical truth. Now, we deduce that some of the false ideas coming in the church were Judaizers. They recognized Christianity, but they wanted to bring the Gentile Christians back into some of the, uh, the, the Old Testament laws and, and the ways of Judaism. A Gentile is anybody that's a non-Jew. You understand that definition? In, in the Jewish mind, you have Jews and Gentiles. It's kind of like in your mind. You and everybody else. Kind of ethnocentric. You had Jews and Gentiles in, in the Bible. And so these, of course, being in modern-day Turkey, the Lycus Valley, they were primarily Gentile Christians. There was a Jewish population there. But this church would have been made up of mainly Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. And these men came in and said, okay, this is good. You, you recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But I see that you're not circumcised. How they saw, don't ask me. <laughs> I see that you're not circumcised. The law says that you must be circumcised. I see that you eat some unclean things. I see that you drink some things that a good Jewish boy should never drink. I see that you don't keep the Sabbath, but you're celebrating on Sunday. And all these things, the book of Colossians, uh, the book of Galatians is the same context. They were coming in, and these Gentiles who had been set free from the law, these Judaizers were now trying to bring him back underneath it. Now the Jews knew they had the law explicitly. They were given the law at Mount Sinai. God gave it to Mo, Mo gave it to them. They knew they had the law. They knew what a burden it was. And we're told in the book of Galatians that the law is a taskmaster or a school teacher driving us to Christ Jesus. The law, the Old Testament, 613, 613 commandments in it say to you, you don't cut it. God is holy. You're sinful, you can't get there. 
There's nothing you could do to get there. It tells the Jew that day in and day out. They had the Old Testament. They had the Tanakh. They had it all written down, and they said, I don't cut it. Now, the Gentile didn't necessarily have those Jewish scriptures. What the Gentile had was his conscience. And the New Testament tells us that for the Gentile, his conscience bore witness that he fell short of the glory of God. You know that your conscience, Gentile, is a gift from God? Do you know that? God gave all of humanity a conscience. He's written his law upon our hearts, so to speak. There is something given by God that says this is wrong. Now, the conscience can be perverted. The conscience can be desensitized. The New Testament says that your conscience can be seared. Just seared. Nothing gets out and nothing comes in. Just locked up, just hardened. It's the idea of a hard heart. But the Jew had the sense of sinfulness from the written law. The Gentile had it from the law of God, the eternity written upon their hearts, the conscience. And so when these Gentiles came to Christ, they knew they had been set free. I was guilty. I felt it. I knew it. Now I'm free. I'm forgiven. He whom the Son is set free is free indeed. And it was wonderful to them. And so you could understand the confusion and, and the travesty and the horror when these Greek philosophers come in and go, Jesus is cool, but there's more. What? What do you mean more? I'm thinking that I'm free here. And then to make it worse, the Judaizers come in now in this chapter. And they say, great that you feel free, but you ought to be circumcised. You ought to abstain from certain foods and from certain drinks. There's certain things in the law that you still need to adhere to. And that's what Paul is addressing here. And the Judaizers that were coming in, and we'll talk about this in two weeks as we get down to verse 18 or so, or verse 16. It's very clear that they were ascetics. You know what an ascetic is? Me neither, so I looked it up. Asceticism is the practice of severe self-discipline and abstention from all forms of indulgence. Very, very strict. You know, it's kind of like the picture of the monk that is up in a chamber somewhere on a mountain. He just drinks water and eats a few crumbs of bread and just denies himself everything. Asceticism, a very strict code of self-denial, believing that it holds some merit before God. It doesn't. We'll see that at the end of chapter 2 in a few weeks. Very clearly, it doesn't. But these Jews were ascetics from the context. And so basically, they came in and they looked at the church and they said, wait a minute. If we Jews who were given the law and the covenants and the promises of God, if we Jews who are circumcised, a sign of the covenant between God and His chosen people, Israel, if we Jews who are circumcised need to hold to asceticism, a very strict code of self-denial and abstinence, how much more do these Gentiles? I mean, we're the Jews. And if we've got to abstain, boy, you Gentiles, if now you're going to claim our Messiah, you've really got to abstain from some things. That's what Paul's addressing here. In verse 11. And so he says, For the Christian, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, in case you don't know what circumcision is, it is the removal of some flesh somewhere on the human anatomy. In the Jewish culture, as prescribed by the Bible, every Jewish male was to be circumcised on the eighth day. You can read about why that came about and and when it came about in Genesis chapter 17. That's your homework. Go read Genesis 17. And basically what circumcision became for Israel was a sign of the covenant that they had entered into with God. It was a sign. It was a picture. It was a reminder of that covenant. Now, God had done that in the past. He'd given people a sign as a reminder of a promise or a covenant. Back in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, he made the rainbow. And he said, this is a sign throughout the generations that I will never flood the earth in this way again. And the rainbow is perverted as it has become. And isn't it just like humanity to pervert something that was a wonderful promise from God? Every time we see the rainbow, it's a sign of one of God's promises. Now circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, was a sign 
a reminder of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant between God and the chosen people. But God was not interested in the flesh. God was and is and always has been interested in the hearts. And when it came to Judaism and when it comes to Christianity, what happens in the external is always supposed to be a reflection of an internal reality. When it becomes vain and empty is when we begin to do external things by rote or, or by religion. It becomes empty religion. We're just doing it as some ritual, but it's not an inward reality. It holds no merit before God. You know, people throughout history have done that with baptism. People have done that with the Lord's Supper. People have done that with all sorts of things. Well, let's go through this little ritual and habing, haraba, yada ying, yada ya, and you're good. You're in, you're in a state of grace. The Bible says that there's no merit in external ritual apart from inward reality. And Abraham was reckoned righteous by God long before the covenant of circumcision. Long before that sign came about, he was already having a righteous standard before God. And so we know that it was not circumcision that made God's people part of the covenant. It was their heart before the Lord, and that was just to be an external sign. John MacArthur says it this way. Thinking about the heart and just the flesh. He says, The cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin inasmuch as that is the part of man that produces life and all that he produces is sinful. And so at the very core, at the place of reproduction, remember David said, I was conceived in iniquity in the Psalms. At the very core, God said, I will give you a visual, visible, tangible reminder that you have a covenant with me, that I am to be your God and you are to be my people. And and when you remember this, it's supposed to be an acknowledgement of faith And my promises, says the Lord. And so it comes down to the heart. And God was always concerned with the heart. He told them much, he told them in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Don't rely upon some external thing that happened. And the Jews really got into that. You know, they they said at one time uh, to Jesus, we are the sons of Abraham. Jesus said, I can make sons of Abraham from these rocks. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anywhere, anything. The New Testament says a Jew is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but inwardly. It's the circumcision of the heart. It's the cutting away of the flesh from the heart. Again, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. No physical, external, ritualistic observance is going to bring about a true meaningful love relationship. It's the heart. The heart is the seat of the emotions. It's the seat of the intellect. And it's the seat of the will, biblically speaking. Represents the totality of who we are. Jeremiah 4.4 again. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And so God made a covenant with the Jewish people that they would be his and he would be theirs. It depended upon God's faithfulness. But he gave them an external sign to remind them. But he told them, don't fall into the external. Remember that it is a heart issue. God is always after our heart. And in the same way, we need to be careful of religious ritual. Even doing the right things can be totally void of spiritual reality. I mean, that's the story of the Jews. They 
in the time of Jesus, they did all the right things. Jesus even said, you tithe 10% of every little herb that you grow in your garden. But you neglect the weightier things of the law, like love and mercy and compassion. Even doing the right things, if it's void of an internal reality and love relationship, there's no merit before God in it. And you know, doing the right thing externally is always easier than the inward reality. I mean, it really is. You know what I mean? A relationship takes some upkeep. A relationship takes, you guys newly married, doesn't it? It takes a little bit of effort. I mean, you're still in the honeymoon phase, but it takes a little bit. A relationship takes a little bit of effort. You can't get by in a relationship on external gestures. There's even a time where I love you are the most empty three words in the world. If it's not backed up with an inner reality. And so Paul's point here, is that the circumcision that we have in Christ, in connection with Christ, is far superior to the external circumcision that these Judaizers Judaizers were trying to get the church in Colossae to adhere to. Come and be circumcised physically and literally. It will add to your spirituality. Paul says that's utter nonsense. You have a circumcision made without hands in verse 11. The circumcision of Christ. God is the one who who performs it. And what it is, is the removal of the sin nature. Just as circumcision is the removal of a little bit of flesh, it is the removal of that fleshly, carnal, sin nature. The body of flesh. The physical body as it belongs to and is dominated by the sinful flesh. And what happens when you come to Jesus is that he strips it off and away like an old filthy garment that's to be laid aside once and for all. You come to Jesus and that old nature that was ruled by sin is stripped away. It's cut off. It's done away with. It is set aside. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation the old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So the circumcision made without hands that you have as a Christian, the circumcision of Christ, is the cutting off of that old sinful nature. In Romans chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The Bible teaches, as contrary as this may be to some of you, that prior to coming to Jesus, we're slaves to sin. Our flesh is alive to sin and dead to God. And we're ruled by the passions of the sinful nature. And that sin dominates us and drives us and controls us. But when you come to Jesus Christ, that old flesh that was alive to sin is cut off. And now because it's dead, you're dead to sin. You're dead to sin. Wearsby, Warren Wearsby, puts it this way. The old nature, the body of the sins of the flesh, was put off, rendered inoperative, so that we need no longer be enslaved to its desires. The old sinful flesh is not eradicated, for we can still sin. But the power has been broken as we yield to Christ and walk in the power of that Spirit. It's not eradicated. It hasn't necessarily ceased to exist. That's for glory. That's when we're with the Lord. It's been said, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are daily being saved from the power of sin. And we are yet to be saved from the presence of sin. We've been saved from the penalty Daily by God's grace, we are continually by His work being saved from the power. No longer has power over us. When we go to be with the Lord, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. But what you need not to do is pick up that old flesh. You need to reckon it. You need to account it. You need to consider it dead. Excuse me if this may seem gruesome. I don't know how else to illustrate it. It would be absurd and obscene. 
if someone were circumcised and they tried to carry that flesh with them and bring it back into operation. Absurd and obscene. Now, there were in ancient times some operations that attempted to do that. People made a change of religion. They would attempt to do that. That's absurd and obscene. It is just as ridiculous when the Christian now begins to nature that flesh that has been cut off, begins to nurture it, excuse me. It's been cut off. It's been rendered powerless. We're dead to sin, but, but too often, you know, even though we've been crucified with Christ, we try, to, we try to take that old guy off the cross. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? Paul the Apostle, Romans chapter 7, that's also your homework. Deuteronomy 17 and Romans chapter 7. Read about Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 7. He knew what I was talking about if you don't. He knew what I was talking about. That, that struggle with that old nature that has been rendered inoperative and the new nature that is alive to Christ. Your spirit being brought alive by the Spirit of God. Well, these two, you see, they're in, 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 in contrast to one another. They're contrary to one another. Go to Galatians 5 if you would. Should only be a few pages back. Galatians 5. Starting in verse 16. Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, that sinful nature that's been rendered inoperative, cut off. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you please or wish. Verse 18, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now those are the deeds of the flesh. Those are the things that that old nature that was cut off when you came to Christ loved to be engaged in. One after those things. And if you begin to nurture that old nature, it will once again be revived and want to go after those things. But the Spirit of God in you will say no. But because you've been neglecting your spiritual life and feeding the carnal life, You've now ascribed to its strength. You've now given it some rule over you. It's ridiculous. Don't take up that old foreskin, but you have. And the Spirit of God says no. And your spirit in you, which by the Spirit of God cries, Abba, Father, says no. I want to do the right thing. I want to draw near to God. I want to be holy. I want to love Him. I want to follow Him. I want to serve you. But your spiritual life has become anemic. You've cultivated the carnal. And the carnal comes and says, no, we will do this lusty thing. And you say, you're right. And you go after it. And the Bible says here, walk according to the Spirit. Those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God, Romans 8, 14. Walk according to the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Cultivating the spiritual life and the presence of God. Continually putting off the things of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, so on and so forth. Putting those things off. Walk according to the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. You know, it's funny, this list. In verse 19, it starts with immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery. And we all read those and go, bad things. Yeah, I would never do those. Sorcery, you know, witchcraft and idolatry and immorality and impurity. Oh, I would never do those. And then the end of the list is interesting. Drunkenness or carousing partying or orgies it could be translated you say i would never do those things but look at the meat of the sandwich the meat of the sandwich is bitterness that's enmities rivalry that's strife 
jealousy, outbursts of anger, quarrels, conflicts, dissensions, factions, simple disagreements. The meat of that sandwich are those interpersonal things that are so hard. You know, there comes a point in the Christian life where you say, well, that's easy. I'm not going to get drunk anymore. I'm not into sorcery. I've laid down all my idols. I'm not going to go carousing. I'm not going to be engaged in sexual immorality. And the enemy says, no big deal. That's fine. You want to do those things? Well, then let's get to the meat of the sandwich. I'll just get you jealous. I'll just get you bitter. I'll just make you angry. I'll make you quarrelsome, combative, divisive. I don't care if you're not sleeping around. I don't care if you're not getting drunk. I don't care if you're not into witchcraft or idolatry. If you are jealous and bitter and divisive, it's just as good to me, Satan says. It is just as fruitful for the kingdom of Satan that we're engaged in those things as it is outward immorality, sorcery, carousing, drunkenness, so on and so forth. And where we really need to all check ourselves this morning is it says in the last part of verse 21, I have forewarned you that those who practice such things are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Practice there means to engage in habitually. If this is the tone and the tenor of your life, you ought to check yourself to see that you're really born again. That's what Paul says there. If you practice these things, he's saying, you're not born again. If you're born again, you inherit the kingdom of God by design, by definition. If these are the tone and the tenor and the habitual practice of your life, then you're probably not born again. And the Bible teaches very clearly that there are many, many who will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not do thus and so in your name? And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You may have had Christian practice and some degree of Christian character. I never knew you. You were never born again. Have you come to God and repented for your sins? Have you put the fullness of your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Conversely with that is verse 22, which is wonderful. Verse 22 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If you're a Christian here today, that old flesh has been rendered inoperative. It's been cut off, circumcised, a circumcision of Christ made without hands. Your job is to then just walk in the newness of life to walk with the Spirit of God, to cultivate that relationship with Christ and to continually put off the carnal. Oh, it, it wants to rear its ugly head up. How do you get it back down? Repentance. That's how you get it back down. That's how you get it back down. You, you turn away from it. You know, if, if you struggle with addiction or lust, the only way to kill that monster is to starve it to death. You turn away and you walk away. You repent. You turn, you're gone. You starve it to death. It is the only way to kill. The more you feed it, the stronger it gets, the bigger it becomes. You struggle with lust or addiction. If you feed it just a little bit, boy, that thing just sucks it up and it just grows. It is a monster, isn't it? Lust and addiction. It is a monster from the pit of hell. And the old you loves it, and is ruled by it. And if you feed it, you just, you, you just nurture that old nature back to life. Here comes that monster. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, which is your homework, in the last verse, woe is me, a sinful man, who will save me from this body of death? 
the old sinful nature. Who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. In him you have been made complete and have the circumcision made without hands. Walk in the newness of life in Jesus' name. Amen? We meant to go further, but time has escaped us. So we're going to stop right there, and once again, we'll pick it up next week. But I want to give us room to repent now, church. I want to give us room to repent. I believe that that's what the Lord would have us do this morning. Am I the only one that needs to repent in this room this morning? Worship team minus me is going to come and begin to play. I'm going to go and get on my face before the Lord and repent and get clean. If you need to do that, I'll join you up here on the carpet. You've got to repent of something, come before the altar. Lay it on the altar. Let the cleansing fire of Christ Jesus burn it away. Every impurity, every foul thing. If you need to repent, today is the day to repent. If you need to repent to someone in this congregation, get up out of your seat, go to where they are and repent to them. You need to repent to Jesus. Do it right here at the altar today. Worship team's going to begin to play. Pastor G will shepherd us as we repent. Father, thank you that times of refreshing come from being in your presence when we repent. Pray for a great spirit of repentance to fall upon us now. Lord, we're so quick to hide and nurture and tuck away our sin. Pray you'd make us quicker today to weep and wail and moan over our sin. We've sinned against the Holy God. I've sinned against the Holy God. Lord, as we repent, flood us with your grace by the cross of Jesus Christ. We know that that is no such small thing. We know that that is a huge thing, our standing in grace. As we get right, flood us with your grace, your mercy, your newness, and your forgiveness.